This is Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for Grounded and Growing in Christ here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we are in a message series called We Believe, focusing on the Gospel of John. All through this Gospel, John is driving us toward belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope and pray that as a result of this series, you will see new faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To hear all of the messages in this series, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And if you'd like to help provide financial support for this radio ministry, you can make a gift of any size at that same website, groundedandgrowingradio.com. If you're not already a part of a local church family, then I would like to invite you to visit us at Orland Park CRC this Sunday as we gather to worship the Lord and study His Word together. To find our service times and location information, just visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, let's open God's Word to see what He has for us today. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13? Today we're going to be looking at verse 21, starting at verse 21, reading through verse 38, the second half of John chapter 13. Let's remember as we hear this, this is God's word. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this. All people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. One of the helpful tactics that John uses in his gospel is when Jesus first shows us something and then he tells us, Something He's used that throughout the gospel, you might remember, in John chapter 5. Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethesda, and the healing illustrates and demonstrates his nature as God. And then he turns and tells the Pharisees what he had just done, that he is God. And, and, And what he's saying is intensified by how he has acted beforehand. This twofold way of getting at that fundamental truth of his nature is very effective. And here in John chapter 13, John 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses that same tactic. Within the first half of John chapter 13, Jesus shows us how it is that we are called to live, and he invites us to imitate him. Now, if we are tempted to miss how it is that he's acted, he's now going to tell us straightforwardly how it is that he is calling us to live. He's commanding us to love. And then this command to love It's framed in a really interesting way. It's surrounded by the unfaithfulness of the disciples. First, we're told about the betrayal of Judas, and right after it, we're told about the denial of Peter, and all of this illustrates that Jesus is so much more faithful than we could imagine, and the disciples are more faithless than we would have believed up to this point. And this faithlessness of the disciples should make all the sweeter the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus that he has for all of his own, the kind of love that he has for you. And it should inspire each of us who are hearing this this morning to this sort of love. So within this text, we have this central reality of the command to love framed by betrayal and denial. And so here are our three points this morning. First, we have a surprising betrayal. That's what opens things up. Then we have the unconditional love of Jesus that's commanded. And then we have the end of the passage being this embarrassing denial. So let's jump into it and start with the surprising betrayal. For you and me and anyone who knows the story, this betrayal is not particularly surprising. We all know that Judas is the betrayer. We know that when we're picking out names for our kids, that any one of the names of the disciples is fair game for a boy with one exception. You could have a Peter, a James, a John, a Philip, even a Bartholomew. All of that's on the table, but you're not going to name your son Judas. It just is not going to happen. If you're like, yeah, our little boy, we're, we're hung up. It's either going to be John or Judas. You're not going to be there because you know Judas is the betrayer. We're so familiar, even culturally, with the fact that Judas is this betrayer that it is not surprising to us in the least that he's the person that betrays, that turns over the Lord Jesus to be crucified. But the disciples are surprised completely. And that's what you notice at the beginning part of John chapter 13, the section that we're reading at least, that the disciples do not expect Judas to be the betrayer. Jesus says that one of the disciples are going to betray him, and the disciples look around, surprised and confused, with absolutely no idea who it could be. And even after Jesus tells Judas, go what you are going to do, go quickly, the disciples assume that he means Go hurry up and give some money to the poor or maybe go and hurry up and buy some more food for our feast. They don't imagine that Judas is going to betray Jesus. Now knowing the rest of the story, knowing that Judas is going to betray uh, Jesus into the hands of the ruling authorities so that he would be crucified helps us to make sense of some of what's been going on up to this point. But it was surprising. It was surprising for the disciples, and it's surprising because of how effectively Judas had hidden the reality of his own divided heart, his divided loyalties. In Judas's situation, he disguised the state of his heart with an expressed spirituality. You probably remember just a few weeks ago, we were talking about when Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, and Judas says, why didn't you just sell that ointment and give the money to the poor? Something that sounds very intensely spiritual. Oh, I've got a better use for that. Why not serve the poor? 
Now, knowing the rest of the story, Judas in John chapter 12, the beginning reads like the first Twitter troll trying to dunk on Mary for demonstrating uh, her love for Jesus by showing his own goodness, his own concern for justice for the poor, his own righteousness. But all of that was to disguise a heart that was captured by greed. He prized riches more than Jesus. Not all of us who are reading this, we need to recognize that this is a temptation for us too, and to be on guard. Now, I always have a little bit of trepidation when we talk about this sort of thing. I've been told that doctors who are studying to be doctors regularly feel that they have the disease that they're studying in medical school. So I don't want you to read this and then to be like, oh, I'm probably Judas. I'm probably secretly not following Jesus. I don't want you to, to, I don't want you to lose the fact that you have a a genuine faith in Jesus, if it is genuine. But I I think it's important for us to pay attention to this. Pay attention to the things that are pulling on our heart. Be brutally honest with yourself and with the Lord in confession and in prayer. Sort of audit your own heart. Is there something that you feel that if you had that, you'd be entirely complete? Is that something other than Jesus? Beware. The way of sin is that it works in someone's heart gradually and takes a hold of it gradually. It is extremely unlikely. And in fact, impossible that Judas would have got into this following Jesus thing because he knew it would pay off someday when he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. There was absolutely no economic benefit for Judas when he entered the fellowship of the 12, when he became one of the disciples of Jesus. There cannot possibly have been a desire for him to enrich himself by or through this. At least that's what it seems to me as I read the Gospel of John. And he was faithful enough to stick with Jesus through this extremely difficult sermon in John 6 where Jesus says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood and 5,000 disciples desert Jesus and 12 remain and Judas is one of those 12. He was well thought enough to be entrusted with the money bag. He was the one that held on to all the possessions of all of the disciples and if they, uh, if they doubted his righteousness, it's very unlikely that they would have said, yeah, Judas, you be the one to hold on to all of our possessions, to all of the money. But he had a greed problem. Maybe a greed problem that Judas himself wasn't even aware of at first, but then he found himself stealing from the funds of the Lord Jesus and his disciples. And then he gives further into temptation and sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver and by John chapter 13, he's under direct control of the devil. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook. Answering seven hard questions that Christians ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, more from Pastor Derek in our series called We Believe, focusing on the Gospel of John. We pray that as a result of this series, you will see new faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever seen this sort of thing operating? 
you know, this sort of gradual and then substantial descent into giving oneself over to sin. I, I knew somebody that was a nanny for a few children. The family that hired her trusted her enough that they gave her a, a credit card with her name on it attached to the family account. They said, if you ever need to take the kids out for lunch or you need to buy something for them, maybe diapers, maybe some clothing items, just use this credit card and, uh, and we'll pay for it. And at first, that was all that she did. She would go out and buy lunch for the kids, a snack, clothing, groceries. As long as it was for the kids, she was making use of it. And then she realized there were some times when groceries were left over and she could take some of those home. And then she came to realize that if she slipped some of her own food needs into the cart, no one was the wiser. And then when some diapers needed to be purchased, a dress for her found its way into the cart and it turned into a shopping spree of some substantial amount one month. And the radical spike in spending alerted the family and they looked into it and they realized that bit by bit, blurry lines had for this person become outright theft. And it was a severe mercy when the family she was working for found out and fired her so that she could realize where she had gone and could repent. And it hadn't happened all at once. It had happened bit by bit to the point where she was just enthralled with, frankly, stealing from this family that had hired her. Sin begins slowly and then it imprisons you. And it's on extraordinary display here with Judas at the beginning of our section in John 13. The spiritual reality of that is clearly demonstrated to us as Judas opens himself up to demonic attack by his descent into greed. We're told that Satan actually enters him as he goes out to betray Jesus. And so for those of us today who see it, who recognize this, here's a way that we can pray today or pray this week, or pray even now as I'm saying it, we could pray something like this. Lord, if there is something that is not you that's getting a hold of my heart right now, or even has a hold of my heart right now, would you help me see it so that I can leave it? Ask that God might demonstrate what that thing could be that is holding sway of your heart so that he might change your trajectory towards greed or selfishness or any other sort of sin that might be Closing in its grip on you so that you might instead move in the direction of holiness, goodness, away from darkness and death because sin is deadly serious. And that's on display here in the first part of this passage. But the disciples don't see the reality of the spiritual imprisonment that Judas is experiencing within his own heart, and they are surprised. The confusion is so great that Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved have a conversation on the, on the DL to determine who it is that could be the betrayer. The disciple whom Jesus loved is mentioned here in the passage, and this disciple whom Jesus loved is almost certainly John, the writer of this gospel narrative. You might have read that and been like, who is this disciple? It's almost certainly John. And you might hear that John has described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved and think, well, that is one arrogant person. He's writing this book and he's like, yeah, and among the 12 disciples, there was Peter and there was James, there was John, there was Thomas, there was Judas, and then there was one who he really loved. I'll let you guess who it was. It was me. That sounds arrogant in the writing of the Gospel of John, doesn't it? It sounds like he is just amping up the fact that, oh, and I'm this special one that he loves. But I don't think that that is actually what's being communicated by all of this. John also, this won't surprise you, wrote the book of 1 John. In 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 1, a very famous verse of scripture, behold, 
see what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should become children of God and that is what we are. In 1 John 3 verse 1, John is positively astounded by the fact that God's love is so extraordinary that it takes us and makes us his children and he invites the Christians that he's writing to to pause and be astounded by the love of God that's so extraordinary that it makes us his children. John is positively captivated by the love of God, the love of Christ Jesus. And so I think that instead of it being self-exaltation that this expresses rejoicing. Can you believe it? He loved even me. Given what he writes in his epistles, it's almost certain that this is just an overwhelming appreciation for the fact that Jesus loved him. And it is so overwhelming that it shapes his identity and he's defined then in relation to the goodness of Jesus, not himself. Who am I? Well, that's not important. All you need to know is that I'm loved by God and that's enough. And when people read the, the small part that I pray in, play in the, in the gospel narrative that I'm writing about Jesus, the only thing that I want them to know is not my name, but they need to know that I'm loved by the Lord Jesus and that that's enough. Now, it's a little funny that somebody came along and said, okay, we're going to title this, this gospel, The Gospel According to John. And if John heard that, I'm sure he would roll his eyes and be like, you missed the point. I didn't put my name in the book. Don't put my name on the book. I'm sure that John would have preferred that this gospel be called The Gospel of the Lord Jesus from one whom Jesus loved. The fact that John is a disciple who Jesus loved demonstrates two fundamentally important realities about your life. Who are you? You are one who is loved by Jesus. And that is enough. If there is lack in any other part of your life, that does not diminish you as a person. Even if it's in every other part of your life, if you are not rich or beautiful or well-liked or highly desired or successful or famous, if you are not bold or strong or healthy or pain-free, if you have not attained all your goals or feel like you regularly fall short, well, take heart. You are loved by Jesus, and that's enough. Here's the second part. Those who have experienced the wonder of the love of Jesus should turn that back in giving the attention and the glory to him. Who are you? It's not really about me. It's about Jesus. Who are you, disciple? Don't worry about that. What you need to know is that Jesus is loving. Those who have experienced the love of the Lord Jesus reflect that back and want Jesus to receive the glory and to be known and to be glorified. That is what should be our most eager and fundamental desire as Christians. That should be our most eager and fundamental desire as a church. Who are we? At a church that Jesus loves. Who are we? Well, what's important is that this is a place where we get to worship Jesus. Who are we? Well, this is a place where Jesus is present by his spirit, and that is enough. So John, man, John John probably wouldn't even want me to mention his name. So the disciple whom Jesus loved signals to Peter and asks Jesus who it could be, and Jesus signals who it is by dipping a piece of bread and handing it to Jesus, showing to those two that it's Judas. He's the one that's going to betray him. 
And that's when the devil takes control of him. And Judas goes to betray Jesus. Notice that this command that's going to come from Jesus to love one another is so effectively framed by first this betrayal and then by the the prophesied denial that Peter is going to offer. It helps us to realize and to remember that this is a dark time when Jesus is giving this command to love. In fact, the passage even tells us that it was night. We're given the sort of tone of the whole passage. It's, it's dark because you can't see. It's nighttime. It's dark because Jesus is about to be betrayed by one of the 12 whom no one would have expected had Jesus not him three times before the rooster crows. When Jesus gives the command to love, it's not an easy, simple love. It's not during the day when everything is going right and nice and he's, I don't know, on the beach and they've all just played a game of ultimate frisbee or something like that and everything is wonderful and easy and simple. He's like, hey, y'all, you know what? You should just, we just, we should just love each other. No, this is literally dark and framed by the darkness of betrayal and denial when Jesus gives the command for unconditional love. And here's the second point. Jesus tells us something that is at the same time exceedingly simple and immensely challenging. Here's the command. Let me actually read it from John chapter 13. A new commandment I give you, verse 34, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus actually says it three times so that we can't miss it. Love one another, love one another. They'll know you're my disciple if you love one another. We're supposed to love. And then he tells us what this love should look like. He says, as I've loved you, so you should love one another. This is a love like Jesus loves. So what does that mean? It means a humble, a consistent, a self-giving love. That's what you are called to. In fact, that's what the Lord Jesus commands you to do. It means the kind of love that takes up the lowliest place. It means the kind of love that sets aside one's own will for the will of the Father. It means the kind of love that's faithful to the point of death. It means the kind of love that lays down its own life. It means the kind of love that persists in the darkest of moments. This is what you are called to. This is what you're commanded. All of you who seek to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. It's also important to talk a little bit about what this doesn't mean. This isn't an invitation to intentional weakness or laziness. It's rather an invitation to be strong and to use your strength in a way that may seem weak to the world. In fact, it probably will. This is not an invitation to be apathetic and then when you find yourself in the place that's the lowest, you're like, well, that's where I'm supposed to be anyway. It's not an invitation not to try to be strong or healthy because you're like, well, Jesus doesn't want me to anyway. But it's, it's rather becoming strong because no one has ever had more authority than the Lord Jesus, more power than the Lord Jesus. And so it's good when we develop our abilities and then to use them not for yourself, but for others and for God. Let me try to put it this way. I played the violin from the time I was in kindergarten to the time I was a junior in high school. And one of the things that I was taught as I was taking violin lessons is that there are, you know, there are a bunch of different 
uh, like loud levels. I'm not sure how to describe this that you can play. So it's from piano to mezzo to forte, but the loudest is fortissimo and the softest is pianissimo. And if you're playing the violin fortissimo, you need to really open it up so that everybody can hear in the church and across the the street to the other side. They'd be also like, is somebody playing the violin in church there? And, uh, And pianissimo is so silent that, you know, you'd need to Lean in to hear it. But what's interesting is that it takes the most energy to play pianissimo. To play very quietly, it takes the most uh, intensity and energy and focus because to sustain something that is incredibly quiet is very challenging. And so when Jesus calls us to a self-giving love, he's not saying, I'm calling you to be weak. No, he's saying, This is exceedingly challenging. It's going to require all of your strength exercised in the lowliest sort of way so that people might lean in and say, what is that that's making you do that? This kind of unconditional love that Jesus calls us to also, it's not an unconditional acceptance. been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This is Pastor Derek Bukema, and on behalf of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, we want to thank you for your support and partnership in proclaiming the gospel here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. If you're looking for a local church to call home, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday. You can find all the details online at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, may God bless you.